You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast about some amazing Black and Latina women in STEM. This new season, in honor of Black History Month, we're celebrating the stories of Black women in STEM. Stay tuned each week for interviews and roundtable conversations because we'll be talking to women in tech, entrepreneurship, finance, and much, much more. Welcome back to another episode of Technically 200. I am your host, Matt Stevenson, and I am here with two more of our incredible, indomitable, illustrious guests. Uh, That was unintended um, uh, alliteration right there, but we've got some amazing guests with us today for our second iteration of our Technically 200 Table Talks. Chanel Fields and Kishao Rogers. Uh, I'll start with Kishao. Kishao is uh, a seasoned engineer and data scientist with over 23 years of experience focused in work with healthcare organizations, helping tackle data management and automation challenges. Uh, She is an uh, active and awarded technology leader, and she has been featured in many national publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur, Black Enterprise, and NFIB. In her commitment to STEM and leveraging technology for social good, she also serves as an advisor to organizations like Think of Us, WAAW Foundation, BCU Department of Computer Science, uh, the first U.S. White House Hackathon for Foster Care, and She Hacks Africa, a software engineering intensive providing training to women and girls in over three African nations. Um, You're also scheduled to release your first book covering the intersection of system thinking, machine intelligence, and human intelligence. Uh, Kishao is the founder and CEO of Time Study, and she holds a BS in computer science from Virginia Commonwealth University. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we also have Chanel Fields. Chanel is the founder and CEO of MD Ally. It is a 911 telehealth company that enables virtual medical care for an innovative public safety systems. Uh, prior to launching MD Ally, Chanel received her MBA from Wharton Business School. Woo-woo. Go Quakers. <laughs> Sales and marketing teams for digital health companies. Now, as a 911 technology thought leader, she's raised over a million dollars in funding and has been featured on the front page of the New York Times business section, interviewed on Good Morning America, and was most recently appointed to Techstars Board of Directors. At MD Ally, she continues to break barriers for driving innovation in 911 tech, championing collaborative healthcare partnerships, and enabling greater connectivity between 911 and the digital healthcare ecosystem. Welcome, Chanel. Thank you. Thanks so much. Keisha, I just learned so much about you. You're so impressive. I mean, I'm I was learning about you I also. Really <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we talk all the time, but it, that was great to hear your bio out loud. Yeah, yeah I'm going to start to be shy on our calls going forward. <laughs> same, same. So this was unintended, but because of logit- logistical challenges, we th- we came to this table talk yet this is the second table talk that we've had and for both of them our guests knew each other beforehand and it's funny because they end up learning so much more about themselves through this interview so I'm excited to to find out what else 
you all learn about each other. So to, to, to give our guests a little bit more background, the both of you, VC-backed female founders, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay, cool. All right. Just wanted to make sure we did our due diligence. So being, being VC-backed in your respective fields is, uh, some may say it's an accomplishment of its own. Would you disagree with that statement? I wouldn't disagree. It's a lot of work, so I guess it might, you might as well call it an accomplishment at the end. <laughs> I was about to say the the work involved is the accomplishment um, because it is a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, and I mean most what everyone says like as a CEO, you have two two things you need to do is um, make sure the company doesn't run out of money and and hire a great team, right? Uh, so you've at least accomplished one of those two um, if you've successfully <laughs> fundraised. So, yeah, I'd say it's good to give yourself a pat on the back. We'll take it as a win. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll take it. I wouldn't say it's the ac- accomplishment, only because yeah. there are many ways to, to keep a company funded. Um, this is just one of them. Agreed. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. You know, Chanel and I, we spoke earlier today and we had a conversation and I had asked a question that she sort of threw back on me, which um, it's it's challenged me in in how I'd like to hold this interview, uh, because I think oftentimes when we are featured or highlighted, there is there's a, a tremendous focus on the struggle and almost like this deficit mentality um, and, and a highlight of, of the odds that you, you have to fought. And being a founder, there are a lot of hurdles you have to clear and odds that you, you have to overcome for sure. But I would like to, um, from the, the perspective or from the frame of you both being Black females in, this, in your respective uh, spaces, I would like to not focus on that being a a quote unquote hurdle, but rather talk about how um, it's benefited your respective organizations and how you've been able to to grow uh, your respective practices. So starting with with you, Chanel, can you talk to us about where you were inspired to even start MD Ally uh, in the first place? Because I mentioned a lot about, you know, 911 tech, I don't think people have a grasp of what 911 tech is. Yeah, most people know what 911 is. I can guarantee almost everyone, um, especially if you watch what was the film when we were younger, The Little Rascals. What's yeah. the number for 911? <laughs> 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 um, so, you, you know, my father was a volunteer EMT when I was growing up um, at, on Long Island in Huntington. There's a Huntington First Aid Squad. Uh, was a big part of my childhood. And um, that was my first introduction into the healthcare system, really, was, you know, from the 911 EMS side of things, where I think maybe for most people, it's like doctor's office or hospitals. Um, so I think that that was part of my foundational love. I also thought like Santa lived in the, the you know, Huntington First Aid Squad, because that's where we went every year to see him. We didn't go to the mall. So that was a really big part of my um, my upbringing and understanding around healthcare. Um, And then as I got into my own career, I focused on the technology side of things uh, of healthcare. 
but um, you know, the catalyst for starting the company was after reading some research that found that low-income and indigent communities have higher rates of dead on arrivals uh, because they have longer ambulance wait times and their challenges with using emergency care as primary care, uh, which, you know, depletes resources that are available for others. Turns out that's not just in low-income and indigent communities, that's everywhere. Um, and, you know, if we've talked to the largest cities and counties in the country who have non-emergency call volume, that's 75, 80% of their calls, right? So um, we, we've seen this pretty consistently across the board. Internationally, it's an issue. Um, and in starting the company was really to focus on how to integrate technology to solve an operational challenge. Um, and enable what we do is we integrate telehealth into the 911 dispatch and EMS response process to allow dispatchers and first responders to connect non-emergency callers to um, virtual care. And, um, you know, that was really just inspired by the public safety space um, and wanting to create technology that enabled them to do their jobs better, right? Like they should just be focused on saving lives um, and we can take on the operational, logistical, administrative burden of anything that detracts from that. Um, so it, it's really, that was the catalyst and the inspiration, but it's turned out to be a much more system-wide issue that we are focused on addressing. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't sound like you're you're just saving lives. You're also saving companies, you're saving municipalities money. Would you, yeah. would you agree yeah. with that? Yes, yes. Stack ranking it, I'd put the lives first, but immediate second is the financial aspect. Um, so, I mean, as you can imagine, just taking an ambulance to the hospital, that's the highest cost avenue of care. Um, if people are calling for things like headaches, sore throat, toe pain, um, things that are very low acuity, non-emergency nature, and going down the highest cost avenue of care, it drives a lot of unnecessary costs for the patient, for the health system providers, for health insurance payers, and for public safety. Um, so really, it's it's a cost driver across the board, and it's unnecessary. Um, so this is something that can definitely keep certain communities in financial distress for quite a while. I mean, I think we've all heard stories about um, something happening to somebody, and then and you know them yelling, "Don't call an ambulance! I can't afford it." I remember there's a story of this woman in Boston who fell. And her leg got caught between the train and the platform. And she was just begging people not to call an ambulance, which is insane, right? I would be like, call the president, call anybody, get me out of here. Um, but, you know, she was just thinking about the cost of it. So um, that's, it's really a, a huge issue that can keep, you know, for generations, folks in, in financial distress. And so being able to avoid that is really, really important. Yes, it's it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal premise and something that I think most of us don't even think about until it's too late. So um, I, I love it. And 
And so Kishao, you are the founder and CEO of Time Study. So Time Study, it's a high growth startup offering solutions for using machine learning, advanced natural language processing and data science to automatically tell a story of how enterprise employees spend their time. That's a lot. That's so, a lot. <laughs> so, so that's that's like the the website version. Can you talk to me in your in your layperson? Why do I care about time study? Yeah. Um, so I actually discovered the idea for time study. My background is in computer science, and uh, as with most people, I started my career as a programmer, and I spent. Uh, a lot of time, many years, building software, enterprise software, and specifically in the healthcare and research sector. And one of the things that I noticed is that for our C-suite executive and for people that manage people, most all of them want to know how their teams are spending their time, but they want to know for different reasons. And uh, because they have different intentions, what often happens is the people that are being asked to report their time uh, have to report it a lot of different ways for a lot of different people for many different reasons. And what it in, what it results in is some of what Chanel has pointed out. It results in high in healthcare and high cost of care. So one of the things that I learned just in building a lot of healthcare systems and studying the data is physicians only spend about 20, 30% of their time actually with patients. And so I was curious about that. It seems insane that someone would spend so much time in medical school and then only spend 30% of their time actually performing medical care. And what we've learned is that a lot of the regulations and the rules and the bureaucracy and a lot of those things actually contribute to the overhead that uh, reduces a person's top of license time. And that's the time that you spend doing what you were trained to do and doing what you love to do. So the company uh, Time Study was formed. It's a data company. Um, I launched it to be able to elevate data to tell a story regarding how people spend their time for practical reasons like cost reporting and all of the boring stuff that no one wants to hear about. Um, so we do have to do that for cost reporting and to justify, you know, contracts, but for a bigger reason, which is to show you how people spend their time, but also to show you why they're spending their time that way. And then to correlate that to their satisfaction at work and the outcome of their work. And our bigger mission at Time Study is to be able to elevate data so that in real time, people that manage people can see opportunities to improve the way that we work, not just for financial reasons, but so that people are serving the people that they serve better. Um, and so that's why I began Time Study. It's a very fascinating data thesis, but also it has a, a social impact element. And healthcare is very complicated. So there are many things we could have done in healthcare. Um, we chose this one um, because it's a very simple concept in that if you can elevate a person's time to what they are best at and most skilled at, you get better results and they're happier. Wow. I, so I, uh, it's, a lot resonated with me. I spent some time as a teacher and I would agree. I, I would say 20%, 20 to 30% of my time was spent actually teaching, you know, between lesson planning, which of course is mission critical and grading, which is also mission critical. But I mean, there was, there was a lot of, there were a lot of meetings, right? There were a lot of, you know, parent phone calls. There was a lot of, you know, behavioral like follow-up. 
So, um, so I completely hear you on that. And I also think back to, I started out my career in finance and I think maybe semi-annually, if not annually, there was a survey that we had to fill out. It took 15 minutes where you had to say your percentages of time spent in like these different buckets. And, you know, they, several pages of asking the same question in different ways. And, and I was just 30 seconds in, I'm like, I don't know if this is accurate. It depends on how I'm feeling today. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm thinking about how much time I've spent on this one particular project um, over the last, you know, two or three days. So is this even accurate? And so it sounds like what time study is doing is, is actually uh, sussing out that data um, so that executives can make insights, not only on the cost side, but also on the people side. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it's correct. Um, I often say I'm a systems thinker. I think that um, a lot of things are related. So how people spend their time is directly related to the woman that Chanel mentioned that did not want an ambulance to pick her up because it is so expensive. And, be, and that's how it becomes expensive. It's these little things that happen. Um, so it seems like a 15 minute survey, but if a hundred people are asking you to fill out a 15 minute survey, then it becomes a bigger issue. And then doctors cost of care becomes higher because they only spend this amount of time and they have to hire more doctors and you know rinse and repeat. And so it's a never ending vicious cycle that we're trying to use data to actually tell that story. Fascinating. I, I before I go down the the geek out avenue of, of data, I've I've got some questions about how you all started. Um, so, talk to me about from idea to whether there was some bootstrapping, any angel investment. What did financing look like for you in the early days? And I'm getting right to the money because I know that there are people who are going to listen to this and they that's what they want to know. They said, wait a second, she's VC backed. Also, she's VC backed. I want to be VC backed. And and I'll add a, a pre a precursor to that question or a pre-question to what did financing look like. Talk to us about the the nuance because I think also a lot of people who may want to start something, the all they hear about is VC and they immediately think, I want VC funding. So talk to us about the, the, the context of that, of like, wait a second, slow your brakes. Here's what you need to consider before even thinking about VC. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think I understand your question a bit more around um, the VC backed piece that you'd mentioned earlier. I, I think my number one reaction is I don't think people should, if it's a, if, when you asked if it was an accomplishment, right? The, I hope people are going around saying, I want to be VC backed. <laughs> like that is not, don't. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but that's not where it's at. I mean, like not in the sense of being VC backed is this horrible thing, but like, that's not how a founder, that's not what you should be focused on. You should want to be client backed, right? Like you should want to be, you know, revenue backed. Um, I can see that. I mean, that's what every founder universally across the board, you know, is, is thinking about, right? Like, uh, what are we revenue backed? And your investors, VCs want you to be revenue backed, right? So um, I'd say if that's something you're thinking, I would I would dismiss that piece of it. Um, 
do you need to be, you know, backed by venture capital? I know that it's been glamorized, right? Um, just through, you know, the media and, uh, you know, tech, I think it's mainly made it pretty popular from, you know, the shows like Shark Tank, all, I don't know, all those sorts of things, right? Um, but I, I think that at a foundational level, when I think of founders and entrepreneurs, I think of people who are going against the grain, who are going in a different direction, who are thinking independently and creating something new, right? Like it's part of, it's one of the ingredients of being a founder is that it's not, you're not just following what's trending. So I'll, I'll say that, right? Like, even if you feel like everyone is getting venture backed by venture capital, that shouldn't at all change what you decide to do. You need to think about what's your business and then what does the business need? What are the resources there? Um, and if venture capital happens to be one of those things, that's when you go that route. But I've talked to folks that guest spoke at Wharton that have started multiple multi-billion dollar companies with no venture capital. <laughs> and they think that it's the craziest thing that everyone is doing venture capital, right? Because um, they're like, you don't have to do that. So um, I would just balance it with that. Um, as far as from idea to fundraising, um, the starting phases is, was like concept validation. So I started working on it in business school, specifically doing concept validation, and I was traveling around the country while I was there. Um, if you are planning on going to business school, it's a good time to get you know more bang for your buck because uh, you can have your professors and your classmates work on your company. Right. So let's talk a bit about the bootstrapping phase, <laughs> uh, getting creative there. Uh, thanks to, you know, all of my classmates that were in the classes where you take where you can work on whatever project you want. I, you know, I always looked for those classes and then it was like, hey, guys, who wants to work on MDLI? Right. And they need they get course credit for it and you get, you know, free support. Um, so I think that when you're at that idea phase, the biggest thing to focus on is getting validation from prospective clients. The biggest validation is getting a client. Um, and then uh, the next is, is really feedback. I really firmly believe that you don't have to come up with a lot of answers. You can just get your clients to tell you the answer to things because um, they will drive you towards the right solution when you start to aggregate their feedback. Uh, so I think in that idea side of things, that's where you need to start. We did, um, while in school, a lot of competitions and got funding through that. So grant funding through competitions. Um, and that was that was helpful, right? Um, that's what bought flights to do ride-alongs with different um, first response systems. Um, so that really gets you through some of that, that concept phase. I don't think if you're in the idea phase, you should fundraise, but I know other people have other opinions around that. It's it's just really, I mean, I guess if you're building like a, like SpaceX, you're not going to get very far without <laughs> funding. So it, it really does depend. Um, but we, we bootstrapped creatively by doing things like that. Um, and then I 
while we were in this bootstrap phase, I was building relationships with investors. I think this is really important. If you're going to talk to investors, you need to build those relationships when you are not fundraising. It is not fun to build a relationship with an investor when you need money. Um, so and it doesn't give you the chance to get to know them, right? Um, so that was the big thing was I had the the venture capital firm that led our first round um i had met probably like a year prior and had coffee with him like every quarter um and solely for the purpose of just catching up right he had been an, an emt previously and so he had a good sense of what the problem was and so i was getting feedback and you know i think on his end he was watching me grow this thing um, and so then they offered to lead our round and I was like, oh, what does that mean? To <laughs> lead the round. <laughs> I don't lead before I knew what it was. Um, and then, you know, when I was ready to raise, I just went back and I said, hey, I'm ready. And they're like, okay, let's do it. So um, I think that's a big piece of it is building out that relationship. And that can help to over, you know, to really navigate and avoid some of the biases that come with being like a female or a minority founder. So that was fantastic, Chanel. And, um, it's, it's so funny that you talk about engaging with potential investors when you don't need the money, right? Yeah. I once heard, um, I think it was Arlen Hamilton. Uh, she was talking about a time during which she needed, she needed to raise and she did have those connections, but she, she needed the cash now. And she said, you know, that's the difference between wealthy people and people who are not wealthy. They don't have to move quickly with their money. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear what your experience has been, Kishel. Yeah, I think Chanel raises a good point about, she counseled me through my last round. So she's like the, <laughs> my therapist, my fundraising therapist. Uh, it's a lot. So I'm a, you know, I'm a technician and, a lot of my work before I started found, uh, Time Study, I had not uh, done any fundraising. I had two companies before Time Study. I bootstrapped those companies and the second one was grant funded. Um, so what I learned, one of my biggest lessons was that fundraising is all about relationship building and people. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time as a technician building a lot of great products and not enough time learning how to build relationships. So the first few years of time study was really learning what is fundraising. I had the venture deals book uh, because I was the same way. What's the lead? You know, what's that mean? And um, every, along the way, I would learn things. Um, when I began time study, so just to, to frame where I was, because I think sometimes we all um, discount our own privilege. So I am a middle-aged woman that had been working for a few years and had my own company. And I actually, and I'm also, I'm a coder. So I participated in the development of our MDP. I wrote a lot of the back-end stuff. Um, and I did that with some other teams that were working with me in another company. That's how we did our MVP. Um, and we did that with customers. Uh, so we recruited a few customers around the country to use what we were building and to give us feedback. And once we knew that there was some there there, the company was launched. And then uh, we began the process of fundraising and we started with an angel round. So you could say that I bootstrapped the MVP idea phase by some of it was sweat equity, some of my own time. Uh, and then some of it was me paying for other developers to do some work. I've seen founders um, 
share equity uh, with people to have things built. Um, I think Chanel, I agree with Chanel's advice. Uh, I, I wouldn't advise people to begin fundraising during the idea phase. Um, and the, I think one of the biggest challenges is to keep the idea focused enough uh, that the MVP is very focused. And a lot of times you'll see these over-engineered prototypes and, and they're not even minimally viable. Um, and then I use my network of technical people to help me finish the MVP. Um, fundraising for me began with angels, uh, Pipeline Angels in, in New York was the first group to write a check at Time Study. Um, that was through a pitch competition that they held in New York once a year. It was the first time I'd ever stood in front of someone and pitched. I didn't even know what a pitch competition was. And I remember someone asked me just to kind of swing by and I'm like, yeah, yeah, what is this? And and we actually got funded and it was the biggest check that they wrote that year. Um, and then from there, um, it was more of an incubator, accelerator phase. Um, we joined an, an accelerator and we also participated in what I would say is a, a incubator for women-led companies um, at Hearst Lab. Um, and then um, our last round is where we began to pursue VC funding. And um, I agree with Chanel wholeheartedly. It's all about relationships. And the best thing to do is to start nurturing those relationships, if that's the direction that you feel that your company needs to go, um, definitely it's a relationship exercise completely. Um, and, you know, one of the other lessons I learned was not to spend a lot of time um, during fundraising, not to spend a lot of time uh, wrestling with bias only because it's a necessary, and we know that bias exists, but it can be pretty, um, it can be demoralizing to fundraise because you're gonna get rejected so much. If you spend so much time thinking about uh, how people can be biased, it can be pretty demoralizing. So the way that I did that was to just form a tribe founders that had been there, done that, um, that I could ask for feedback, that could bounce ideas. And I just created it like a sales pipeline. Uh, and that's how we got through the fundraising. And it's just a necessary part of this business. Uh, but I would not um, advise anyone, I agree with Ch Chanel, I would not advise anyone to pursue being venture-backed. Um, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. It's just one instrument to pursue funding. Can can you all, I mean, you you both have talked about this, you know, building out that sales pipeline and and building these networks and I really appreciate that you've addressed the sort of the relative privilege that we all have. We all have some privilege, right? Um, we all have some access or some, um, some networks or et cetera. Can you talk about how you all, um, and you've already, you've already touched on how you've developed some of these, but what about that founder who is working on a really great product and they are hungry and they are, they are hearing your advice and, but they don't have the same level of, of, of access. They don't, they um, maybe did not go to VCU or graduate from Wharton or, or, or Cornell, or they, they don't have any, um, anyone, they may not live in a, a region that is um, as tech enabled as our respective regions. How might you advise them to get started? Because I, I will tell you, I, I can imagine that there will be a lot of folks reaching out to you after this interview. So you might use this and say, just listen back to the interview because I already addressed this. Yeah, you know, I think that there's 
I think there's a northern star there, which is like no matter who you are, where you are, what you have. And I'm focused on folks who don't have much right in this answer. Um, the customer validation is the only thing that matters. If you can like ignore everyone else, <laughs> yeah. ignore everyone else, ignore everything else. It just, if you have something that you believe someone will buy, get someone to buy it, get then another person, then another person. If you only do that, investors will be knocking down your door. Like the thing is, if you want leverage and you want success, go get that leverage. Go, go find that, create a prototype with whatever you can. This does definitely depend on what you're trying to build, right? Um, but if you are a painter and you can find someone to buy that and suddenly hundreds of people, for example, are buying your paintings, then that's revenue and income that you get to reinvest into the business. That's traction that you get to use as proof points. And ultimately, I mean, there are successful entrepreneurs who don't, who turn investors down. Um, everything I'm oversimplifying, right? Like how do you create your first, first prototype? You know, if you don't have X, Y, you know, certain resources to do that. Um, those are definitely things that, that are challenging. And, um, I loved seeing after last year, more resources and initiatives around creating space and resources for founders that don't have, um, any privileges or many privileges, um, to give them that, that support. And I think finding those are incredibly important. Um, but I, I just want them to, I want, I would want you to feel empowered that there is a Trump card, which is having a client. That's, that's it. No one can, no investor can tell you your idea is stupid. If your client tells you it's a good one, right? Like that's the thing, that's the power. And so that is really what you want to focus on. Um, because then, you know, everyone else, uh, they're basically going to listen to the traction that you have. It's non-negotiable. It's non-debatable. Peach, what do you think? I agree. I, I think, I mean, you know, sales is king. I always say that. Um, when we when I st launched Time Study, we launched with sales. Uh, so even that initial group of customers were paying customers. Uh, they paid early adopter rates, but they still paid. Um, I think that's important, um, particularly in an industry where free pilots are valued. Um, there are a lot of companies that uh, are able to launch and get larger organizations to pilot. But even in a pilot, there should be a value uh, attached to what they're piloting so that people understand that your product has value. Um, so one of the things that uh, I did was to link up with business uh, development people to ensure that we had a very clear pricing model for what we were offering at the stage that we were in during MVP. And if you're just getting started and you have a great idea, um, the best thing you could do um, is, is something that I did in a formal company, um, the one that was grant funded. We were actually, um, through the grant funds, we were asked or forced, I would say, we were required to go out and talk to 100 
potential customers. Um, and we could not tell them anything about the product or our idea or what we were offering or what we thought about what the problem we were solving. Uh, and they actually monitored what, how these conversations that we had with these 100 strangers. And these were people around the world. We just had to literally walk outside and walk up to strangers to learn about them and what they cared about and what their compelling pain points were. Um, and it gave us a lot of information on whether we were on the right track. Um, I think that's one of the most powerful things that a person that's trying to build something could do um, is to open the door for, for another possibility. So really clarify the idea by letting your customers tell you your idea. That's the most powerful thing. If you don't mention your idea and your customers say, you know what would be great? This. And if you get a lot of people saying the same thing, then you know you're on to something. And then what you want to do is to resist the urge to, again, don't over-engineer the MVP. It is expensive to do that. So you want to create the most minimally viable version of your solution. And I would even take tech off the table just for a minute and imagine that you could not write a single line of code to deliver the solution? How would you solve that problem? It's a really good way for technicians specifically to take themselves out of this like tendency to want to code everything. Um, but if you think about it from that framework, your MVP could actually not involve as much tech as you think it involves. So that's a really good way to create an MVP that you could bootstrap, um, that if you're a technician, you could participate in building. If you're not, build those relationships. You really want to focus on being a relationship builder and getting people to collaborate with you to get that done. And the best thing you can do is get it in someone's hands as soon as possible and validate that someone's willing to pay for it. So it's not enough that they'll use it and say, this is great, because if you give me something for free, I'm going to say, this is fantastic. Look at what you did. But if you say, hey, can you give me a dollar? Then I'm going to probably say, for what? Like for this? No, I don't know. So you want to actually talk about money because <laughs> that's another mistake is to build it and give it to people for free and say, look, everyone loves it. And then, you know, you ask them for two cents and they're like, well, I don't love it that much, but I like it. So you do want to make sure that people are willing to pay. And that's the MVP phase. So the trick is really clarifying the idea well enough that you don't have to spend so much money during that phase. And if you are thinking, well, I don't have access to people or resources or, or you know, money, um, there's a reason why you're in a position to think of great ideas. And I would just say leverage what you're good at. Like the thing that I'm, I'm really good at is making a dollar out of 15 cents. You give me a quarter, I turn it into a dollar. And I'm very resourceful. So be resourceful. If you're a resourceful person, actually put your energy into building the people that can build it for you if you can't build it for yourself. Um, so use whatever you have. Um, don't, uh, I know you mentioned earlier about having this scarcity mindset. It is somewhat of a trap because you could actually believe that you have nothing, but you have something. Um, so just think about what is it that you have that can move the idea one step forward. Not everyone needs $2 billion or $200 million or $2 million even to get an idea off the ground. So I wouldn't actually think about VC backing until you have something that customers said that they really want to use and that they love. And then you can tell VCs, hey, look at all of these people that are willing to pay for this thing if we can get some funding. And that's a more powerful fundraising story. That's, I mean, anytime you can work in make a dollar out of 15 cents. 
it's all right by me. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's about. You know, you really have to make what you have available work for you, bottom line, like whatever that is. And everyone has something different. So I mentioned privilege earlier. It's not to dismiss that there isn't like incredible bias. And there's a lot of things that we can say are unfair, but Every, you know, I think everyone can take a step back and say, well, where do I have some privilege? And so I mentioned mine, mine said I'm a little bit older, I'm married, I've been working for a while. That was a privilege for me because I have a partner that's like, okay, let me let you do your thing. You got a place to live. You don't have to worry about food. So not everyone has that, but you have something. Maybe you have freedom, maybe you have flexibility, maybe you live in New York and you have a great network. Just really think about what you have available to to you and make that work for you. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And so question question for you, Kishao. So given your technical background, did you have another technical co-founder or were you CEO and CTO uh, specifically with time study? Yeah, I did not have a, I'm a solo founder, which is another conversation, um, but it wasn't because I chose to be a solo founder. It was just, I saw an opportunity and I just went for it instead of finding a co-founder. Um, and I didn't get a CTO because I was able to function as a CTO. Um, we have a CTO now uh, at Time Study and I'm the CEO. And a lot of what I focus on is business development, making sure that my team has enough resources to actually execute our roadmap and also making sure that there's a vision that everyone can align around. That's my job. Um, and I bring to the table somewhat of a technical philosophy around how we treat data and people. Um, so that's my role at Time Study. That type of thing will evolve as your company evolves. So if you are, um, and I hate to use the phrases non-technical and technical because in some ways they are meaningless in, in the earlier stage of a company. But if you're the type of founder that is not um, interested in executing the technical part of your business, um, there are other ways, there are ways also to, to collaborate with people. Sometimes it involves splitting equity. Um, but with that, um, again, think big. How big are you want to take this? Um, is this going to be a VC-backed company or not? And you really want to be careful about the use of equity because equity is a tool. Um, and at some point down the road, you don't want to feel like you gave half of your company away to a person to write 100 lines of code because you didn't want to figure out how to get that done without giving that away. Um, with some people, it's unavoidable. So if you are linking with a technician, what you want to focus on, not only is their skills, but their in investment in the idea and their commitment to working with you. Um, that's, just, that's really important because at some point that person won't be able to execute what you're building because they're not going to have time or maybe using something that's outside of their wheelhouse from a skill set um, perspective. So you want a person that's on board with you, with working with you on this idea. That's where you wanna start thinking about co-founders. Um, I've seen a lot of people um, link up with CTOs because they just need someone to write code um, and the person takes equity, but they're not interested in running a business with you. Like they, you know, but they have equity and then you do a lot of work trying to make this thing work. So these are like a lot of war stories, but there are a lot of really successful stories as well um, with founders and uh, co-founding teams that work really well together. I think the trick is really knowing what you bring to the table and everyone has something to bring to the table. Some people are incredible visionaries. 
um, I would team up with like a futurist in a heartbeat because I am inspired by them. Some people are incredible visionaries. Some people are great technicians. Other people are great salespeople. Just figure out who you are and then start to build those relationships. Um, relationship building, I think, is the most important skill of all because you can find someone to execute the ideas. There was one, of, there was back to my my earlier question to Kishao. I'd love to ask you the flip side of that, Chanel. Can you talk to us about um, assuming that you, I don't want to assume, so I'll ask, can you code? <laughs> no. Well, okay, hold on, hold on, guys, hold on. I have read HTML for dummies and I, I'm not that bad. Like I can put a, I can, I can put a mean button HTML link. What is it? href on a page. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, so I just want that on the record. <laughs> can I build a 911 telehealth company that plugs into the 911 infrastructure, CAD and EPCRs? No. Um, but I can encourage those on my team who do it. Uh, you know, I think well, that this was, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. Well, what's the what's the question now that you've made yeah. me feel insecure? I didn't want to assume. So 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 since you since you cannot code uh, that much, you can code a little bit, not that much. Uh, and you're you you also are a solo founder, right? Yeah. For yeah. Um, MDLI, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Um, can you talk about the decision that you made to not bring on, you know, and I'll just use this in air quotes, technical co-founder or someone at the, like initially as a CTO, um, as well as how you, you addressed the tech uh, side of MDLI, which, I mean, it's a tech company, so the whole thing. Yeah, okay, so there's there's really good things in, in here. Um, so... One, I'd say for the validation side of things, he's already said this, right? Like you don't need to write code to validate a concept. There are lots of ways to validate a concept. Um, you need to talk to your customers and do discovery. Um, and then prototype simulate. I mean, I know how to do, I, I taught myself prototyping. I built out our website, by the way, if anybody goes to our website, you can just see a little bit of what I can do. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> uh, there's, um, you know, there's, there's really that, that that's a big piece of it, especially for what I was focused on building. There was so much I needed to understand first about how the existing technology works like I'll tell you, something about me is I can learn anything, right? And so I could learn to code, uh, but I, I know what my strengths are, and um, really understanding and designing a solution was a piece of that. Customer discovery was a big piece of that. Um, the biggest piece, which ties to what you're saying, is recruiting a team, right? Uh, and that's really, you know, how as a, a non-technical solo founder, you can found a tech company. Uh, it's all about building or assembling a team uh, that has the skill sets that you need. Like if you think about it as a puzzle, you've got to find those other pieces of the puzzle, right? You don't just try and become all of those things because you really know what you're good at. So like Yisha was mentioning, like a visionary founder, 
it sounds really egotistical, but that's, that's me. So we should work on our next company together, by the way. Um, but that's a big part of what my strengths are and being able to think through a, a solution. And I can have very, very deep technical conversations uh, because I am a self learner. Like I will, I, when I'm pulling all nighters, that's well, that's what I'm focused on really is like understanding everyone. If I'm going to work with an accountant, I'm going to come into that meeting understanding like how this accounting thing needs to work. If I'm working with a technical person, I'm going to develop that, that understanding. Um, from the recruitment side of things, it's really finding someone that can build what you need. How do you know what you need? Discovery, right? Like, and, and I, here's something I firmly believe is that when you are going to recruit additional team members, let's say your, your technical co-founder or technical CTO, um, you'll get a better one the more you know exactly what you need to build. So let's say you just come up with an idea and then you immediately go to find, you know, your, your technical partner to work on it, but then your idea is going to change and morph so much, right? So did they, did their skill set and experience match what you thought you were going to build? Or does it match what you're actually going to need to execute? So I think that that validation piece matters so much because, you know, I've I've talked to a number of um, CTOs over the years as I was like getting to to find the the one that we have now that's a perfect fit. So I think that that's a big piece of why you really do need to spend that time up front of understanding what you're building so that you can bring aboard the right person to work on that because on the technical side there, you have to know what their experience is, right? Do they have the experience to build what exactly you're trying to build? And if you don't have that answer, they'll become disengaged pretty quickly or they won't have the answer either. So um, that, that's kind of the, the way that I think about it. And then, you know, the other piece is I think Hollywood has really drummed up this whole aspect of like two friends that like magically meet and like they're in a garage and they're starting this company and like that's a co-founder and everyone promotes this idea of this magical soulmate that you meet and you know you build this billion dollar empire together it happens right i guess like it happens (laughs) um but I don't think actually that's the majority of companies that are being founded. I mean, think about there are millions of companies. What are the odds that all of them started with two people who are just perfect for each other and partnering on starting a business? It's like little to none, right? Um, so there are tons of solo founders out there. So many. I, I don't understand why that is not really um, talked about as much. What I will say is if you can get a great co-founder, 100% go for it. Do not opt to be solo if you don't have to. There's no solo founder that's going to be like, no, this is my, well, maybe someone would say that, but there's so much work to be done. You are going to be so tired, right? Having someone to share that burden and to take on that work is why it's it's important to find that, that um, founder. But in the absence of that, you just build a team, which is your job, right? Is to build a team. So that's what I did was my, my perfect soulmate did not come along. So I just 
built a perfect team and then happily just moved on, right? So um, I would say don't be discouraged if you don't have a co-founder. Spend your time. You know, you can do customer discovery by yourself. You can figure all those things out um, and then recruit the, the best team possible. I would also say um, just to, and I know this is not part of your question, but I wanted to, to comment on Chanel's uh, HTML skills. Um, <laughs> Groupon was actually, I would say study, study companies, because Groupon is one of the fascinating companies to me. They actually started with a WordPress blog. It was basically a blog. That's how they delivered Groupon savings to their customers, a blog. And they did that for a long time before they actually built an app. And so there are tons of stories like that of really of companies that scaled, that started in a way, most of them didn't start the way they are now. So that's another thing. The thing that you think you're building is probably not what ultimately you will scale. So just know that and know that the people that you're working with may change with each stage of the companies. So I've got two final questions um, before we wrap up. And the first one is, uh, somewhat related to that self-care, but it's, you know, what is, what is helping you drive forward? Um, you, you both are building and refining empires respectively. And that is, that is not easy. And sometimes you get these huge wins and, but they're also valleys. And so I'd love to know just one thing that's moving you forward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think as far as like what motivates me to, um, what motivates me, I think it, it's a, in large part my, if you think about the space that I'm in with first responders, um, that's a big part of the motivation for me um, is the understanding and knowing what they do every day that um, really like, if you think about the last year with COVID and the pandemic, um, they are um, going out there every day, putting their lives on the line, right? Which I think we've gotten too used to that. Uh, and they had to grapple with the COVID. They had to grapple with um, responding to uh, or helping with the protests, right? Because I work at DMS and fire. Then there was uh, um, also the wildfires that happened. So when I think about being tired or um, frustrated, or let's say, I, I don't know if I can do this, I want to quit they actually can immediately get me to stop thinking about that, right? Just knowing that if I don't build this, what are the consequences and what will, you know, the world miss out on is a big driver for me. Um, and that's a big part, like that mission is really something that, that brings a lot of energy. So in terms of, uh, I believe your question is what keeps me going. I guess. Um, so, you know, when I've, I've always liked building things that people like to use. I remember when I wrote my first, uh, when I created my first software and I remember the first person that actually used it. And that just, I just fell in love with software engineering because of that. 
uh, I got into time study and the other companies because of that similar feedback loop. I like building things that are useful to people that they like using. And that's what keeps me going um, is that feedback. If I ever feel that I'm creating something that is not useful um, and that people don't want, it has, it, I just can't work like that. So I look for opportunities to add value to people through technology and uh, getting that feedback and validation from our customers is a part of what keeps me going. Um, knowing that there are people that need what we're building and that are willing to pay for it is, is great. Um, outside of that, the sort of larger vision, you know, I'm a geek um, of really elevating data because there's a lot, um, there's a lot of discussion on data and privacy and AI and ethics. And I see uh, some, a lot of the work that I'm doing as an opportunity uh, to create technologies that can contextualize data in a way that delivers positive impact to humans. So one of the things that we're careful not to do is to say that we're just um, uh, automating a timesheet. For someone because someone may think that we're you know tracking them and tracing them for a reason and they have no agency in what we're reporting on them so creating a company that really centers the human um, that says hey this person is satisfied at work and this is the pattern of work that leads to people like this being satisfied i think um, i'm excited to learn about that and so what keeps me locked in is learning um, I'm a person that uh, reacts to what I'm learning. Um, so I think it's important if you're going to do this kind of work that when people are giving you feedback that you're actually listening and that you're listening, especially when they're giving you feedback that you don't want to hear um, because it's an opportunity to learn and grow. So that's actually what keeps me going. Um, if I felt that there was nothing else for me to learn, I would probably find something else to do. Um, because I'm a lifelong learner. I just, I love the challenge of learning new things and doing new things. And, um, and I need to be able to create things that people actually are benefit from what I'm creating, that they see some value in what we're creating. Um, so that's what, in my family, I'm, I have a really supportive tribe of people that, you know, I get to, to be with and live with and do life with. And so they're continually supportive. So in a lot of ways, I feel very fortunate. I don't underestimate, um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to actually be able to do this kind of work. And I think anyone that is in a position to create something from scratch should feel very fortunate that they are able to do that because that there are a lot of people that cannot um, for a lot of different reasons. They're not in a position um, to create something. Perhaps they're focused on eating, or just finding shelter for themselves. And you know, there, there's like a survival to life that can prohibit you from being able to think very clearly or to be able to create ideas that benefit other people. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. And that's actually what keeps me going every day is that I get to do that every day. Beautiful. Thank you ladies for, for spending so much time with me this afternoon, I'm Ms. Chanel Fields and uh, Kishao Rogers, I am so grateful for um, the opportunity to interview you both and amplify the great work that you all are doing. Um, and check them out. All right, this is this is some incredible work that they're both doing. And um, and yeah, we can't wait to uh, to see what's next for you all. Twenty twenty one, I'm sure is going to be an even bigger year for you both. So thanks again. 
and uh, we will see you on the next episode of Technically 200. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Technically 200. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com. Until next time.